Hi everybody, welcome back. We're here with episode 13, I believe, of Herpetological Highlights, and this week we are delving into the world of frog fungus. Um, I'm Ben Marshall, and joining me, as always, co-hosting, is Tom Major. Um, Yeah, frog fungus. We'll try not to be too depressing, try to keep it relatively light, but quite a serious problem facing amphibians across the world and certainly deserve it of a lot of good and interesting research. Yeah, definitely. Um, it is a bit sad and it is a bit scary. Actually, uh, chytrid, this uh, Batrachochytrium dendrobatidis is the sort of... Mm. I spe- think we'll just say chytrid or BD. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> which one? Should we say for B- BD or chytrid? I think I like BD. Chytrid's a weird word. Yeah, we'll go with BD then. Cool. I prefer chytrid just because it's a weird word and it sounds nice as you say it. All right, then we'll say chytrid. Yeah, I don't have a particularly strong appealing. So yeah, and if and if we (laughs) we'll use them interchangeably to keep people on their feet. Yes. Okay, that's a good idea. We've got to keep people a little bit confused. Don't want them to be relaxing. Uh, Yeah, sweet. So we decided we'd do an episode on this fungus because well, we kind of had it in the back of our heads that it was something that one day would be worthy of an episode but then we had some really nice for sure we had some really nice emails from someone called sarah morgan and um yeah she asked explicitly that we talk about chytrid so we thought yep yeah, bump it up to the top of the queue let's have a chat um yeah so this fungus is one of the smallest and simplest fungi in in the world really um the chytridiomycota um, they actually are the smallest and simplest fungi, and they're really old. They emerged soon after the pre-Cambrian period, so a little bit more recently than 600 million years ago, and they are ancestral to all the fungi that we have on Earth now. So they're, mm. you know, while they're pretty cool, they're kind of like the hipster fungi, um, fungi before the other fungi, they're not, they're not good for frogs or other amphibians. Um, because what happens is this fungi infects the skin on the the very outside of the amphibians, the keratin layers, um, and it spreads across the body. And what it does is it makes their skin thicken up and start falling off. And um, eventually, this interferes with the osmoregulation of the animal. So they struggle to maintain the water balance in their bodies and then they die. Which is pretty awful. That sounds like a horrible way to go. Yeah, absolutely horrible. Yeah. So they. I got to admit, I'm I'm largely ignorant of of BD and the actual details of it, and, and so reading for me this time, I've I've uh, I suppose cheated a little bit and gone with a couple of review papers uh, to get me up to speed, and just talking about what it does. Also, how widespread it is. I mean, it's ridiculously widespread. It's been found in over 700 species wow. of, of vertebrates. That's up That's up 200 on like a few years ago, because I read something, for a paper from like 2012, which said it was like 500, so that's obviously continuing to grow. <laughs> yeah, well, you might have been looking at amphibian-specific or something. This is, this is from a LIPS 2016, uh, yeah, LIPS 2016 paper where those 700 species across three orders of vertebrates. Because it doesn't just stick to frogs either. Um, what is it? Zebrafish have been found to have 
to be to be a a vector. What's the word? Vector. <clears throat> a vector or a host yeah. of of BD. Really. So, yeah. Um, I do not have the citation to hand, or do I? Will he? While you're looking for that, they also just recently in 2013 found it in Sicilians for the first time. Which, mm. yeah, Sicilians are the amphibians which have no legs. They have the weird kind of face tentacle that comes out. They're super cool. Um, they're basically like amphibian snakes. <laughs> but super, super understudied, right? Yeah. I mean... Yeah, they live underground and they're really sneaky and hard to find. So not people don't really know much about them. Um, but yeah, it lives in the skin the same way it does with frogs and salamanders in Sicilians. Um, and, and they can die from it too. And uh, yeah, it was actually... Gower et al. from the Natural History Museum. Uh, they published a paper in 2013, all about it was in uh, it was in African Sicilians. It was first discovered. Hmm. Yeah. See, that's got to be a, a pretty hefty tragedy because I know. I mean, that is going to cause Sicilians to drop off the face of the earth before we even know they exist. Yeah. Like Superfossorial amphibian. Good luck. Good luck finding them. Yeah, and I wonder if ah, oh, it's weird because. Well, yeah, we're going to get into transmission later, but um... yeah, just quickly the uh, the zebrafish citation. It's a Lu et al. paper, twenty seventeen, um, published twentieth of April. So pretty, pretty new and pretty fresh. And that zebrafish is a a, ve- a vector. Yes, we're going with vector or a non amphibian host. Wow, but they're not affected by the disease. Uh, dose-dependent mortality can infect and proliferate in zebrafish tissue. So presuming if it's causing mortality in tissue, it'll cause mortality in the fish. Oh, wow. Wow, the plot thickens. However, I have not read this in detail. That is purely off the abstract. So take it with a large pinch of salt. The plot thickens and the the skin thickens and then death. Uh, so yeah, I've I actually uh, hunted out the paper where um, BD was first described. Chytrid was first described. Um, it's 1999 by Longcore et al. And uh, mm. basically, there's some mysterious deaths in captive frogs from the National Zoological Park in Washington D.C. So there were like white tree frogs and a couple of species of dart frog, which are sort of pretty common in um, captivity. Not unusual that a zoo would have those. But they were dying in mysterious circumstances. And um, yeah, from the backs of one of the frogs, a blue poison dart frog, Dendrobates azurius, they managed to isolate this horrible new fungus, um, which they named Batrococytrium dendrobatitis. And so the etymology of that is that Batraco is Greek for frog, ancient Greek, and uh, Chytra is earthen pot, um, I guess frog holds the fungus or something like that i don't know but then there's, mm, there's... yes or it turns it into something that resembles a pot yeah 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 <laughs> i don't think it's that but yeah and then <laughs> and then the species name is um from dendrobates which is the genus of frog which was yeah basically the fungus mm. killed a load of these frogs and so they named it after it which is the least they could do really yes martyrs for the cause i suppose yeah, so uh, it's quite interesting to read that paper though because it's it's the fir- it's the first and only time I've read about Kaichid without any of the like really dramatic introductions because they didn't know they yes. discovered a monster. 
Yeah, well, this was the thing. It's like even prior to its discovery, it was having a significant impact on species. I mean, going back to the lip stuff, it's expected that perhaps 100 of uh, the 168 extinct species prior to the nine sorry since the 90s have since the 90s since the 80s have had some you know contribution or or you can point your finger at bd as being partly to blame mm. which is just nuts to think about that scale of of impact and how recent a lot of the discoveries are and how recent a lot of the, the research is just getting into into how and why and what what's happening yeah yeah definitely is it is it is an emerging threat um so should we on that note have a delve into our first paper yes i think so yeah i think so i think that leads us in nicely so this first one is by colby ramirez berger richard hulika jock skerat and it's entitled terrestrial dispersal and potential environmental transmission of the amphibian chytrid fungus and this was published in PLOS One. Um, so open access, you can go and read it yourselves. Um, it's a really accessible paper, actually. Uh, it's quite quite good fun. Although it is obviously savage. You can read it and enjoy it. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you just slightly remove the real world implications of what's being said, yeah, it can be fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's good pictures. So worth a look. So uh, yeah. Well, they were just talking about basically how it's already known that you can get chytrid from one frog to another by um, the frogs sort of competing territorially when they have battles and they physically touch each other. That's how chytrid gets on yes. from one to another. Or if they're mating, they're in amplexus, which is the the uh, where the male kind of sits on the female while she lays eggs. Um, that's another way. But... Uh, yeah, and also contaminated water, they already knew you could get it through water. Um, and that's because the zoo spores, which is kind of like the juvenile stage of the fungus, um, have a tail, like a sperm, and they can swim around in water. Um, they also carried in currents. Um, but isn't it, that's the thing, it's more a current thing than active swimming, because they can't actually get too far. Yeah, I would imagine... Just swimming, wasn't it? It was, it was two centimetres or something, I believe. One of the papers mentioned. Oh, really? Is it uh, as little as that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, they can, you know, they can get about, but they're very small and they're going to be very dependent on um, what the water's doing and environmental factors to do with the water. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess for a tiny, tiny zoo spore, two centimeters is probably really far. Like we. Let me. Ju- I'm, I'm now. I've said it. I have to just double check. Because I would scoff at someone who told me they'd moved two centimetres. Uh, aquatic zoo spores are flagellated but can only swim up to two centimetres. Yes. Hence, passive transport is important. I was right. I did remember that correctly. Nice. Yeah. That's a pretty unambiguous sentence. <laughs> yeah. Where was that go. from? <laughs> that sentence is from another Colby et al. paper in 2015 uh, discussing the aerial dispersal of BD in rainwater. Ah, yes. But they are citing another paper by uh, P.O. Trotsky et al. in 2004. Right on. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, well, yeah, I think, yeah, we'll get on to that aerial transmission. Um, so this this paper that we're on now, the um, environmental transmission, 
they basically went out to Honduras. Um, they, uh, Colby and his team work in um, Kasuko National Park in Honduras. And they were aiming to find out whether or not vegetation, so leaves, that frogs have been sitting on, once the frog leaves, if the frog was infected with chytrid fungus, is there then chytrid fungus on that leaf subsequently? Do they leave it behind them for other frogs to potentially walk into? Um, and it's no, it's known that recently metamorphosed frogs are most vulnerable to chytrid fungus. So ones that have like just recently stopped being tadpoles and started being leggy guys. Um, leggy guys. Yeah. And uh, yes. yeah, they were doing this under natural field conditions. So they were just looking at wild metamorphosed frogs, peeling them off a leaf, swabbing the frog, swabbing the leaf and seeing if there was chytrid on one or other. Um, and they did this with four different species of frogs. Oh, I'm going to go for a quadruple whammy of scientific names here. Du- oh, brace yourself. Oh, hold on tight. So, uh, Duel Manohyla soralia, Plectrohyla dasypus, Plectrohyla exquisita, and Pytochoihyla hyptomica. That last one was the heart. Save the best for last. Uh, and those mm. are... There's it kind a... of sounded like you were speaking in tongues. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, no. The snakes have heard me and they're going crazy. Um yeah, and so one of them is a brook frog, which is really spotty and cool. Two of those are species of spike thumb frog, and one of them is a stream frog. Um, the the Plectrohyla, they are the spike frogs. Um, they've got thumb spikes, but I couldn't actually work out for those particular ones. I couldn't find anything about why they have spiked thumbs. But I... Oh, it still looks stylish. Oh, is it? Oh, I should have known. Yeah, yeah, it's like a punk rocker sort of thing. Or is it so they can hitch lifts easier? That too. They may be professional hitchhikers. <laughs> but I did manage... I, I hope there's not anything explicitly published about their use of their spike thumbs. But if there is, uh, please let us know because I couldn't find it. I did, however, find out about a different spike thumb frog called the Otten frog, which is from the Amimi, Amami Islands, um, just off Japan. And this is Babina subaspera. And that has a fifth finger, which is basically a spike. And uh, yeah, the, the extra digit has a sharp spine on it. But in males, the spine is much bigger and um, they use it to battle other males. Um, but they don't actually hurt the other males. It's kind of just like a ritualized combat. Fencing. Yes. Fencing with giant frog thumb prongs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, however, there's another species of spike thumb frog um, called Hypsoboas rosenbergi, and they actually do stab each other to death with their thumbs, which is hellish. They stab each other in the eyes, the eardrums. Um, oh, God. Yeah, imagine death by That's eardrum horrible. stabbing. Like, oh, yeah, sounds terrible. Yeah, but someone's thumb as well. Yeah, yeah, it's so disrespectful. It's not all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's like this. <laughs> yeah. But the otten frogs, they're like, they're pretty chill. They don't, they don't stab each other. Um, well, they do, but only in like, only in jest. So, uh, yeah, they have this like rate, and they also have this kind of like raised patch on their sides, the otten frogs, which seems to sort of stop them being stabbed too badly. Um, that's all in a paper by Iwai, two thousand thirteen. But yeah, cool. Yeah, but these are the guys that are potentially being hit quite hard by BD, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. So they, um, it's the study site in Kasuko uh, National Park is like cloud forest, so it's. 
some of the most sort of idyllic habitat. I mean, I'd love, I'd love to go there. It sounds like an incredible place. Um, yeah, and all, a lot of the frogs there have BD. They found that um, 88.5% of frogs mm. they sampled tested positive, and it was on 69.2% of leaves. Um, yeah, and the chances were if the frog had come off a leaf and the frog had BD on it, then the leaf would as well. It was like 97% chance, um, which is... Yeah, pretty unequivocal sign that the frogs are leaving their fungus behind, and then it can come into contact with more frogs. Yeah, see, I mean that that's really getting at the the, the whole point of this paper is it's identifying uh, viable vectors between which BD is being transferred from frog to environment, and then environment onto other frog. Because if you can ID that stuff, you have a chance presuming you can actually do something about it to slow or prevent the uh, the spread. And hopefully, in other areas where it hasn't become as pronounced a problem, get on that before it really uh, takes off and prevent that sort of big epidemic that parts of uh, South American places are seeing, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's all about identifying that vector and, and being able to come up with some sort of solution. Yeah, you know, in, uh, you absolutely yeah. have to. Um, you absolutely have to understand these things before you can even have a hope of uh, combating them effectively. So, yeah, I think uh, this paper is pretty fundamental to helping us do that. And um, you mentioned earlier, just briefly, there was another paper. Um, well, actually, actually, wait a sec. Let's. Uh, I've got. What was I going to say? Yeah. So. They also um, found chytrid in all three of the rivers which they sampled, which were kind of around and about of the study. The frogs were all sitting above the rivers um, a lot of the time. So the, all those rivers were infected with chytrid. Um, yeah, and so there's a photo in the paper as well of two frogs. One was an adult and one was a juvenile, and they were sat on the same plant but on different leaves, but they were near each other. And it's quite a sweet photo. Um, but then you get the backstory to it, and basically the juvenile tested positive, but the adult tested negative. But the the juvenile is literally like six inches away from the adult, and then you you come to realise that everywhere that juvenile goes, it's leaving bits of fungus behind, and so it actually becomes quite a tragic image because yes. you know that that adult's in pretty 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 bad danger. Although I think there's a pre- there's a there's a significant chance that it. it- yeah, could get BD off these leaves. That being said, they did have an interesting caveat to the way they were detecting BD on leaves, and that's that they had no way of distinguishing whether the BD uh, DNA they were detecting was from viable uh, fungus or from deceased expired cells. Right. So, perhaps you could get lucky and the whatever residue on the leaf at that time that the ad- the adult's landing on is not viable, so there's not going to be an actual active infection there. Mm. But that being said, the whole situation we were talking about the cloud forest, so you've got a relatively cool condition in terms, you know, compared to other places. And BD can survive up to, what was it, 28 centigrade um, degrees? So, so that's the sort of thermal maximum before... You know, start taking hits and uh, aren't being able to survive. And the other thing that takes them out is 
uh, dying via desiccation. Right. Which, again, it's not going to be particularly likely on a leaf in a shaded, humid, tropical forest. So there is a good chance that they are going to be viable on these leaves and maintain viability over a decent amount of time. So and in lab tests, that could be two months. Wow, blimey. So what would you need to do? Uh, that was with those moist conditions. So we need to deforest the whole yeah. place. <laughs> it's the only case, yeah, we need a we need to wipe everything out so it's just pure sun baking down on open soil yeah. and hope that all the frogs quickly adapt to being purely fossorial. Oh gosh, that'd be ideal. <laughs> Prevent all rainfall. But go but sorry, going back to the viable versus non viable thing, there are people working on methods to be able to differentiate. Uh there's a Bloy et al. twenty thirteen paper that have some methods that are being worked on that may help in the future to, to narrow down viable versus non-viable BD. So, although it is a caveat, it doesn't seem like a particularly big one because mm. of just the conditions and the known uh, viability of BD. Yeah. And certainly in the future, that's going to be something that's going to be able to ex- be explicitly tested and known. Yeah. So, No, no, definitely important. It is really important to mention that, though, because, um, yeah, there's no certainty to whether or not this BD is going to be infecting others. But if it is, it's it's going to be bad. Um, And and the chances are looking like (laughs) pretty much every external factor is is suggesting, yeah, this is pretty likely. Yeah. (laughs) BD positive frog next to BD negative frog. uh, And can, you know, BD can persist on the stuff they're sitting on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as long as the load's high enough to actually, you know, get an infection, you're, you're... yeah. There's yeah. There's Pretty also there's also this hasn't been proven at all, um, but they mentioned it in the paper that people have suggested that um, chytrid BD can survive away from any host as a saprobe, which is an organism that feeds on decaying matter. So there's a possibility Sapro. that it could live in just like leaf litter and stuff and just hang around and lurk mm. and, and gain energy. And so if that was the case, that would ma- massively increase the amount of time it could sit and lurk. And uh, I mean, that might go some way to explaining its prevalence, but like that's not proven. That's just this kind of... Well, it certainly you know, does help suggest its its existence in morphosaurial frogs and, and amphibians that aren't using these permanent or semi-permanent contaminated water bodies. Yeah, because that was really the one of the things they wanted to get at with this paper is how are these frogs that are living primarily arboreal lifestyles or terrestrial lifestyles away from these water bodies most of their lives still have such a high prevalence of BD? There's got to be something else going on, transferring it from an infected area to what you presume would be a less infected area. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, there's another um, there's another paper, isn't there? Um, by the same team about um, rainwater and BD. Mm. Which is just another, basically it's suggesting that as another vector or another transfer pathway from BD from contaminated water outwards, that it might be able to be uh, held in atmospheric suspension and, and spread via just water dispersal, regular rain cycle stuff. And that massively increases the range from water body to you know somewhere that can be potentially uh infected yeah so they were talking about places that were like 600 meters away from the nearest permanent river 
and in a tropical environment with multiple streams and rivers and water and just a high overturn of water and rainwater, that's pretty much everywhere. Yeah, yeah. You know, that that really starts, yeah, <laughs> yeah. checking out where it can go. Yeah, that's very frightening. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, like, so you've basically got all these complex and still relatively poorly understood transmission routes um which are kind of like mm. synergistic of course because there's no reason that a spore can't get go down a waterfall you know get battered around become in the air yep. and you know float across a little bit away from the water where it manages to land on a frog that frog then climbs up a tree sits on a yep. branch far away and there's another arboreal frog up there, which would never ever even dream of coming down to the water. But there you go. It could get captured, provided that... Uh... Yeah. And then it's sitting on the leaf, it gets evaporated up into the, you know, air columns dispersed a bit more, dropped down, and suddenly it's 600 metres from where it started. Yeah. And all the frogs along the way have been potentially exposed to it. Mm-hmm. Scary stuff. Um, yeah, well, it, it drives home how critical a sort of holistic understanding of the environment is. You can't just look at species and species natural history to get the full picture of what's going on here it's got to be a multi-species approach and it's got to take into account all these i suppose biogeographical or yeah biogeographical features and uh processes to really get an idea of what's going on yeah definitely requires some um some uh multifaceted professionals because you know you want to combine epidemiology with herpetology um which yeah, yeah, fair play, good good hustle to the people that are doing this. Um, one thing I did want to mention is that there's all these uh, contamination routes that we're learning about. Um, one massive one, which is um, very prevalent and probably a big, big, big part of the success of uh, this fungus, is actually the petrade. Um, yes. So. The first case of kaito that we know about, which uh, happened a long time prior to the uh, description of it as a species in 1999, was in Xenopus levis, the African clawed frog. Um, and this was mm. collected in South Africa from the wild in 1938. Um, and now these species, the African clawed frog, are really, really important medically. Um and yeah they've had their full what they've had their full genome sequenced and they're used in all sorts of uh experiments yeah. modifying embryos and all sorts of yeah uh, reproductive and, and and development yeah one of my investigations one of my yeah. one of my friends for his undergraduate dissertation altered their uh altered some of their uh genes and made them look monstrous which i thought was pretty cool yeah i couldn't make and if you do it just right that. you can you can make them into dinosaurs right so they say, yeah. Um, That's what that documentary told me. Yeah, Mr. DNA gave a really succinct explanation at the beginning of that documentary. It's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, beginning in the, this was in the 1930s, loads of them, loads. They were all shipped from Africa to England, the US and Australia, and they were looking at things like pregnancy testing and myriad of the laboratory research, and it's thought that the fungus travel with these frogs. And it, mm. nowadays, um, one of the big drivers of amphibians traveling, they don't ordinarily get on planes of their own volition. But if people are buying them as pets, then they do. And um, yeah, there's not 
I think my understanding is that it's not obligatory in any way for pet shops to be testing their frogs or anything like that. Um, and it's not like anyone's doing this maliciously. Even if it was, like... <laughs> yeah, how are you going to police <laughs> that? Pet shops are going to do that off their own back yeah. if they don't have to. Yeah. It's a whole other, like ball game of enforcing something that's going to cost money time and probably require some expertise yeah so yeah um but yeah unless it's like a little handheld like quick in the field job for testing bd which i think they're developing i presume there isn't currently i think that's being developed though i think i've I've got off i don't know that rings a bell maybe it's i'm sure i'm sure it is because i i know of there are field kits to do like in the field dna extraction and all sorts and then you know stuff is progressing as you know pocket pocket laboratories that can be done in the field sort of jobs. So give it a couple of years and then. Uh, no, it does exist. Maybe it's it does not exist. As outlandish as I was saying. It exists already. Um, I just had a quick Google, Doctor G, and uh, it turns out. Uh, glad I looked this up because it's University of Exeter. Big up. Used to go there. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, doctors Dylan, Stevens, and Thornton. Um, they did it as part of a study with the Whitley Wildlife Conservation Trust, uh, Andrew Bokit. Um, and they've di- they've developed a diagnostic device to rapidly detect uh, chytrid, and it's basically a, a commercial pregnancy test style device. Um, and it and it only takes cool. takes fifteen minutes. So there you go. So there's no excuse for the pet trade not doing a good job and. At least monitoring the situation. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's really cool. There's a photo of a, uh, I think that's a white tree frog. I don't really know many things about frogs. But um, it's just kind of like looking quizzically at this device. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, he wants to know. He wants to know if his skin's going to dry out. Oh, gosh, poor guy. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tense time for him. Yeah, terrible. So... Yeah, and you, you can cure the you can cure the fungus too. If you put a frog in an antifungal bath, it takes ten days, but um, you can basically just I don't know what the word is for this dissolve the fungus and it goes away. So there are cures you can cure it really quite easily in captivity. Um, but basically, I think what it's it's hard. I am um, you know you can't just be like giving out advice about stuff. But I think uh, if you're going to be buying amphibians. You know, captive bred amphibians from known sources that are willing to talk about chytrid is the best way to go. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, it's something that people should be aware of. Yeah. 100%. Because, I mean, we're, we're talking about a ludicrous dispersal of, you know, an invasive type of BD. I mean, that's the other thing we have not mentioned. Is that it's not just one, you know, it's not just BD. There are multiple different lineages of BD with varying levels of uh, virulence and different levels of damaging effects um so in that sense gotta i can't i've forgotten what i was even talking about (laughs) i got distracted by lineages (laughs) Um, well never mind yeah so just something to consider really isn't it um something to be yes no that's what i was going to say yeah it's, it's 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 ridiculously widespread that's what i was going to make the point of is it is pretty much everywhere but a few oceanic islands now there's a good sort of summary paper by Olsen et al in 2013 that has some nice maps of all the places it's been detected and things hmm. so in terms of being aware uh, it doesn't really matter where you are you have to be aware 
especially in trade sort of situations. I mean, it's just been introduced to Madagascar as far as I know there was a little bit sort of back and forth of yes, it isn't there, no, it isn't back and forth, but it seems like it might very well be now. Um, but at the same time, that might be a less virulent type, not entirely, well, at least at the time in 2013, they didn't know what type it was. So 100% be aware and 100% be talk about something that you can give advice for. This is something that comes up again and again when people talk about uh, the Vences and Glore field guide for Madagascar. There's a whole big bright red page dedicated to basically saying, don't be the one to bring Kitrid to Madagascar. Disinfect your stuff going from continent to continent, especially if you're going to specifically vulnerable areas and places. You know, you can imagine a hobbyist or even a professional, you know, going from field site to field site, if you're not aware of what you're taking around on the bottom of your boots or in your field equipment, you could just be another vector. Mm. And it's not like it's too difficult to clean your stuff either. There's, um, I'm just throwing paper after paper out right now, aren't I? Um, <laughs> there is a paper by someone who I forget the name of, cannot find the citation in my notes which is frustrating hold up there is a paper by Ran Van Ruji et al in 2017 which is looking at how good different chemical disinfectants are at uh, tackling not just BD but the uh, one that hits salamanders and then B-sal. another couple of like very closely related organisms and that seems like a lot of things are quite effective with destroying them and getting rid of them and they are quite widely available so there's not really that much of an excuse for even hobbyists and stuff not to be considering this and to be preventing the spread by their own field gear and uh, and equipment so mm. good food for thought yeah very yeah 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 good so um I think that's a good like I think that's a good summation of Kytrade and what's going on with it. Um what we were hoping to do in this episode is talk about the transmission and then kinda of go on to talk about the um natural history of one of the frogs which uh mm, which you mentioned yeah. in the paper. However, it turns out that they're pretty much not a lot is known about them. So what we've instead elected to do is follow on and look at a different spike-thumbed frog that isn't explicitly mentioned in the transmission paper, but is still a spike-thumbed frog. Um, and just do a bit about their natural history and why they're cool and why frogs in this genus are worth being concerned about. Yes. I think... I hope we've not missed anything too dramatic with the sort of general overview of BD. Um, Take-home mes- you know, take messages, transmission, there are huge numbers of vectors. It takes a lot of work to find out exactly what's going on because environmental things are complicated interwoven and it seems like bd's pretty well geared to surviving in in tropical environments and yeah being spread the key thing so, is just don't let it get to new areas because then once it does um good luck getting rid of it yeah exactly. yeah. yeah 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 which um yeah that was advice that's advice from jonathan colby himself so yeah there you go right so, yes, yeah, paper two. Do you want to introduce it? 
Yeah, so this is by... That is not the correct citation. It is by... Your citations are a mess. It, they are today for some reason. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. It's, it's by <laughs> Barrio Amoros, Grunwald, Franz Chavez, Mendoza, and La Forest, uh, published in 2016 in Amphibian and Reptile Conservation. And the title is Notes on the Natural History and Cool Description of the Critically Endangered Plectohyla avia uh, from Chipas, Mexico. Cool. So basically a nice little natural history note and description. Yeah, yeah. Um, so as you said, this frog from Mexico, um, they're found in the El Triunfo Biosu Reserve um, and all the way across uh, the Volcan Tacana of Chiapas and there's uh, also in southwestern Guatemala um, and the highlands of Guatemala as well. Um, and prior to this paper, it was only sort of, you know, your sort of description of morphology and distribution that was known about these frogs that had been published. So uh, these authors set out to write something about their natural history and how they behave and what kind of habitats they, how they use the habitat they inhabit, basically. Hmm. For these big old frogs, uh, males up to nine centimetres, uh, females seven um yeah They're... and they're a dark military green is how i would describe that color yeah yeah they've got really cool eyes they've got um they've got bright yellow eyes yeah they've got elliptical pupils Beautiful. but they go horizontally through the eye so they've got these like yes little black bars running from side to side in their eye and it, it's black and it's sort of black on a yellow background it looks really cool and it's interesting fold of skin that on each sort of flank that just overlaps with uh, with their legs is sort of weird it, it just looks like they've got too much skin and it's sort of overflowing yeah it looks <laughs> I suppose it, is the best way of describing it it looks like they've been really successful in losing weight and then the skin remains yes yes that's what it yes <laughs> That's a bit. That's a bit graphic, actually. I shouldn't have said that, but yeah, um, that's. I don't know. Why do they have that? They mention the skin fold, do they? Uh, it, yes, they suggest it's um, to do with preventing desiccation. Ah, okay, okay. So it stops from drying out. Anyway, um, sorry. Their their words exactly may help with dermal respiration. Ah, so it's not desiccation at all. So, so it's more so surface it's area. It's more surface area yeah. for breathing. Because frogs yes, breathe through their certainly. skin. Yes. I misremembered. Weirdos. Yeah, that's just seriously can't can't empathise with that kind of a behaviour. Um, <laughs> Coming over here, your skin breathing. <laughs> so, uh, oh, <laughs> so the reason this paper kind of came about is because they were near a village um, called Mirador Chikuhits. Um, and they, it was just about to rain and they walked upstream and they found this narrow ravine and uh, it had sort of a dense canopy over the top and they heard frogs calling and um, they went over to this little pool and there was five frogs in there uh, and they were kind of acting out and doing some crazy stuff 
not not especially. <laughs> not especially. Yo, get over here. These yeah. frogs That's are like, acting up. Actually, a direct quote from get the video from camera the, from the paper. Uh, yeah, there's there was um, five of them, uh, four males and a female, yes. and they were Plectrohyla avia. Um, what's the common name of this frog? Does it have one? Uh, wrinkly green face. Wrinkly green face. Ah, yes. Wrinkly green face. The I old... don't know. I, I feel like um, the common name usually just gets cast aside because there's no like proper standardization of it in any sort of way. The old book. You know, there's probably a proper Mexican name for them as well. I've um, just looked it up. It's um, Greater Spike Thumb Frog. Because they're big and they've got spiky thumbs. They're the Greater Spike Thumb Frog. Um, yes, they do have spikes, although the spikes are not immediately visible from the photographs provided in the paper. Neither are the teeth that they keep talking about. Um, yes, they do. They have a close-up of the teeth on page 14. Yeah, but, the, and they are but what I mean is you can't, very you can't see it in the context of an entire frog. No. I thought they'd be, like, jagging out the sides, but you can't see them. Anyway. Well, like, like, a, like a, what are those fanged deer? What are the what? Those, those deer that have fangs. What are you talking about, deer? This is a herpetology podcast. <laughs> yes, well, that's, that's what they should look like. Uh, I don't know what that is. Cross I... a deer with a with a green frog. I mean, that's monstrous. It is. Oh, curse my lack of mammal knowledge. Never mind. No one cares. So there is it were barking deer. Do the barking deer have fangs? No, they're famous for the barking. Uh. Two males, <laughs> two male frogs were having a battle, which is quite exciting. Um, one of them... A frog fight, yeah. Yeah. One of them, they were fighting in a, a, a quite an unusual way where one of them basically just grabbed the small one and like sat on it for a bit and the other one was forced to <laughs> beat a hasty retreat. Um, they also had a short video of the frogs mating. Um, well... You can go watch it. Ple- it's on YouTube. It's in the show notes. Yeah, it's pretty. It's quite a cool video. It's yeah. It's not that exciting, but it's worth to have a look. It's just to see what these frogs look like. Um, it's actually well for once. It's actually quite a good quality video that you can actually see what the hell's going on, as opposed to some of the previous ones that we've uh, directed people towards that are black and white camera trap photos of a frog walking <laughs> in front of a snake. Yeah, yeah. Well, is that a frog? <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, it seems to be this blur moving across. Yeah. It's high tech and it's excellently lit as well. Um, so yeah, they basically it's just a video of a male frog hanging onto the female, and the female's kind of swimming around. It looks like she's trying to not really. It looks like she kind of just wants no part of it <clears throat> but the male is much bigger yes yeah so that's behavior um yeah and another thing which is cool about these frogs is that they were cooling underwater mm. which um you can hear on the video which i didn't realize frogs would do i didn't think they'd make noises underwater i assumed it was always no i, I, I don't know how widespread that is i don't yeah. For all I know, all frogs do it. Yeah, because some of them were calling from outside the water and some of them were calling from under the water, which I thought was quite cool. Um, yeah, and uh, anyway, yeah, because the female was swimming around underwater while the um, while the male was on top engaged in amplexus, um, it's actually the first case of underwater breeding in hylid frogs, except for one other. Uh, genus <laughs> i did really like that um, yeah i got <laughs> that sentence so it's like it's the first time it's ever been seen around the <laughs> among highlands <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just carry on and just carry on but no to be fair 
it's still a big deal. Yeah, well, you got to build up the hype. But it was just a, an interesting, <laughs> interesting choice of phrasing for the sentence. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah, they thought um, the males, the male, ah, can you see it in the video? I can't remember. They like scratch the females' heads with their sticky out teeth. Um, and they, they postulated that maybe this was to do with... Um, Encouraging the female to ovulate or like it helped with um, the recep- sexual reception. Um, mm. They didn't actually find uh, this mental gland, which is this a gland which is underneath the jaw of some amphibians. Um, they didn't find it in this frog because they did initially think that perhaps they were using a mental gland to like rub pheromones on the female. Um, this is something that some salamanders do there's a species called plethodon shermani which is the red-legged salamander which is from mountain forests of southeastern united states and what they do they have this really unusual courtship behavior which is like highly ritualized which um part of part of it is that the um male squirts some pheromones out of a submandular gland so underneath the jaw um called the mental gland and he like rubs it on the female's nostrils, nares. Um, and these are only delivered. They've already started courting by this time. Um, but basically what they found out, there's a paper by Arnold in 1976, and they found out that it actually increases the receptivity of the female and um, subsequent mating success. Uh, they're not an attractant. So it's once it's once the courtship's already started, but they um, they help. Uh, they help. Grease the wheels of the more successful reproduction, if you will. And there's a video of that which I put in the show notes, which is quite worth a watch as well. Cool. Yeah, it's the... it's salamander information. Yeah, salamander. That's unexpected. Yeah. But pleasant. Yeah, yeah. They're really cool. Um, they're like Sicilians with legs. <laughs> like Sicilians with legs. <laughs> Maybe. I think that's doing them a little bit of a disservice, actually, but... Yeah. Um, what else was in this paper? Um, it had a sentence that made me quite angry. Oh. And the sentence was, one boy told us that he enjoyed killing them. Yeah, I thought that was funny, man. Oh, right. Okay. The it was little... completely out of context. They... I was just like, well, what the... What? No, I didn't think it was out the... of context because they're like, oh, we asked local people because the frog is like really... In... It's um, critically endangered, endangered right? right? Yeah. But so what they would... What they were doing, ICN thinks they're critically endangered. So they asked the local people, "What are these frogs about? Do you see them?" And everyone was like, "Yeah, we see them all the time. Like, don't worry about it. The frogs are fine." And then one boy obviously got the complete wrong end of the stick and was like, "I like smashing them." <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's exactly what you could imagine. It's just his kids sidles up. It's a classic sort of, oh, these people care about something, so I'm going to say that I smash them. <laughs> sort of, you know, just to get a reaction. He probably doesn't. I'd like know. to think that he doesn't. I can't imagine someone seeing this frog's face and looking it in the eye in those weird yellowy eyes and be like yeah i'm gonna smash that not a chance uh yeah they're too charming yeah i don't know they are far too charming i don't know man you know when you're a kid and you just get the urge to kill (laughs) (laughs) the the, the green mist comes down all frogs must be destroyed yeah, I don't know. God. No, I, don't, I, I don't hated know. that. It's, I don't like that. I don't possible. like hearing about that. It's possible. Uh, anyway, yeah, this species is... Uh, they they conclude from their conversations with um, people who live in the nearby village that it could be that they're more widely distributed and more abundant than 
the IUCN was led to believe, but they're only active for a short period of time because when they found all these... Listen, won't boy if they don't stop that boy from crushing them all. He's <laughs> got to be number one priority. <laughs> He's threats on the IUCN website. Like, threats include that boy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think his, like, destruction regime is that militant or rigorous that we need to be that worried. <laughs> I don't know, man. He enjoys it. And, you know, if you enjoy what you do, you never work a day in your life. <laughs> oh, God, the boy. Okay. <laughs> so aside from stopping that boy, we just... Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're really fun frogs. They're boring to look at. They're ugly, but... Um, yeah. No, they're not. Goodness sake. If you People can download the paper and they can look at number four... Of figure one, and there was a toad looking out of a small cave. Oh yeah, that's and he's cute. <laughs> he's fantastic. Yeah, actually, that is quite an endearing picture. Yeah, it looks like yeah, it looks like deeply dissatisfied. Uh, right. Anyway, yeah, so this is my cave. Keep yeah. that boy away from me. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, the boy. Okay, so we're descending into lunacy madness. Let's go on to. Are you ready to go on to the last paper? Um, yes. It's our world famous, world famous. Species of the bi week. Yeah, this is actually the um, longest running. Can we get a and... sound effect? <laughs> the longest running and um, just widely regarded as the best uh, new species segment on any podcast. Species of the bi week. Oof. I wouldn't want to say that. I would. I'll say anything. <laughs> Damn the consequences. <laughs> ah! uh, yeah, species of the bye week. Uh, do you know, I haven't actually got the citation here. Please, could you read it out? Uh, so it's by Peloso, Orico, Haddad, Lima, Philho, and Sturaro. Uh, 2016, a new species of clown tree frog. Dendrosophis, Luco. Filiatus species group from Amazonia, uh, published in the South American Journal of Herpetology. Yeah. It's a type of hylid. Yeah, um, but it won't be the first ever hylid to demonstrate... Underwater breeding. Yes, thank you. Gosh, mind blank. No, exactly. That, that, uh, that, uh, that title's already been taken. Yeah, twice. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, basically there was a study, a systematic study, so they were looking at the uh, genetic interrelationships between Amazonian hylid frogs, hylid frogs being, well, hylidae is like tree frogs and friends. Some of them don't live in trees, but they're related, so they get lumped in with them. Uh, and they basically and came across... you can across... remember the name because high is high in the trees. Uh, it's like stalactite. Uh, I'm actually unsure as to whether or not that's a joke. <laughs> well... I mean, it helps me remember. Oh, I see. It's not an actual like root of it. It's just how you remember. Oh, oh no! <laughs> you said that in <laughs> such a like deadpan way. I was like, that oh, must must be true. <laughs> um, that's really daft. That makes no sense. Yeah. So uh, yeah, an unnamed species. They kept spotting it. They saw it in the wild. They saw it in pickled jars in museums. 
and um <laughs> <laughs> they go to the shop and it's in the pickle jar <laughs> what is this waiting for them at the post office <laughs> <laughs> this isn't a gherkin to the back of their car uh, yeah uh, so yeah it's basically it's Sorry. from it's from northern brazil and they thought well, this is a new species let us describe it um mm. and uh i mean first thing you got to say about this frog is that it's just incredible to look at. It's a beauty. Yeah. It's uh, extraordinarily yellow. Um, some of them are... They're all like a base colour of bright yellow, at least the males. Eh? There's no photos of females in this um, paper. It's, so, yeah, it's almost a fluorescent yellow. It, it's seriously potent. Yeah, it's really cool. And uh, some of them have got like red spots all down the flanks and on the legs. And then some of them have like a, re- a red stripe with yellow spots inside it um i don't know which one i like better i think i probably like the spotty one better but um oh see i'll be going with the stripey one well fine (laughs) and uh yeah they're just really cool just just giving balance you know sorry ben yeah equal proportional representation um other spotted frogs are also available (laughs) yeah um (laughs) and this uh yeah this tree dwelling exciting looking frog uh they Quite found... small. How big were they? Twenty-two millimeters. Oh, that is tiny. Twenty-two to twenty-five SVL. Yeah, so they're yeah. little climbing tree frogs that are bright yellow. So, you know, quite charismatic. Yeah, they yeah. are. They're really that look, cool. That size, very cute. Yeah, and um, worryingly, speci- very specific information was given as to their location. We talked about that at length before. Well, with a frog that looks like this, probably not the best idea. Um, if you are going to think about stealing frogs from the wild, please reconsider. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That'll stop them. <laughs> yeah, please. We'll be very disappointed. Yeah, we will. We'll be devastated. So uh, they were found at night, these frogs. They're sort of walking through the jungle at night. They had frogs calling. Um, they were sitting on branches and leaves above the water. And uh, yeah, really... I mean, that's pretty classical frog behavior, but um, anywhere from just above the water to more than three meters high. Mm. And uh, yeah, they've. I think you're excited about the etymology of this one, aren't you? The etymology is fun. It's extremely fun. So the name is uh, Dendrosophus mappinguari. Guri? Mappinguri? Mapinguari. Mapinguari. Okay. And Mapinguari is a mythical creature that inhabit, inhabits the Amazonian region. It is reportedly tall and furry, with a single eye, long claws, and a second mouth in its belly. In other words, absolutely terrifying and a horrible monster. Yeah. Almost the exact opposite of this adorable yellow frog. <laughs> <laughs> but the basically the what people suspect is that um, it's probably come from stories back in the day, back in the prehistoric day of the giant ground sloths that used to live across the region. Yeah, mega sort of transmorphed into into your local Bigfoot tail. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the frog is named in honour of this Amazonian folklore. And so it's sort of never forgotten and not lost to lost to history. Mm-hmm. So they called it Dendropsophus mappinguari. Yeah. 
Which What's the common name? Fun. The common name's like something clown frog, isn't it? Uh, well, it's a new species of clown tree frog is in the title. Uh, whether Do they actually give it a suggested common name? I don't know. If not, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to make one up. Oh yeah, good. I like doing this. Uh, let me just check. There isn't one. Oh, it has a name. Lame. So the common name is the Mapinguari clown tree frog. That's acceptable. Mm. I mean, that's fine. Yeah. I would have called it something about bananas. But yeah. The the sort of um, acne banana frog. Acne banana frog. I was thinking tarantula egg banana frog. Why? What? What's the tarantula egg look like? Well, the little black bits in bananas are tarantula eggs. Aren't oh they? yes, that's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Just now, it's very early in the morning here. I uh, yeah, don't take me a minute to get that. Uh, yeah, cool. Yeah. Uh, just another badass little frog. Welcome to science, frog. Hope that you survive. Mm, yeah. All the menagerie of threats besetting you. <laughs> ah, good. So, um, yeah. Uh, oh. Oh, yeah. So I read a newspaper article the other day. And there's a... Nor in you in America, there's a, a a university in Idaho called Northwest Nazarene, um, and they were given some frogs which were intercepted by, um, I think it was in, I think it was in Mexico. They were intercepted by customs, um, and they were on their way to Hong Kong. These frogs and oh, yes. um, yeah. So this uh, biology professor, Dr. John Cossell, was given these frogs. Um, and at first, they all thought they were a rare species of fringe-limbed tree frogs, and that's why they sent them to uh, Dr. Cossel, because he knows about f- fringe-limbed tree frogs. But when they got there, um, they had a closer look, and they actually now think that they're brand new to science, which <laughs> is pretty tragic. Oh, God, what a tragic story. A species that we don't even know yeah. exists and is properly named is already being exploited. Yeah. So, I mean, that does counter the sort of point of don't give specific habitat information about frogs and, and new species because they're going to go out and exploit them. They don't even need that. Yeah. Don't even need to look at the new notes. They could just go there and pick things that are cool. It doesn't matter if they've been found or described yeah. previously. It's very true. Uh, but, yeah. Um, but yeah, and what's what's quite brutal about it is if they do discover it to be a new species, they won't have any idea where they're from. Other than Me- they think they're from Mexico, but they you know they don't know. Um, so Somewhere yeah. in Mexico. Just thought that. Was well, at a... least they can make a good like species key. So in future surveys of areas, it's not going to be put down as as this like close to this species or something. It's they, it will be in the keys. So that will make that at least easier, won't it? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I just thought that was worth a mention. Uh, and ah, yes. So um, earlier on in the episode, we talked about the work of Jonathan Colby and Co. Um, they work for HARCC, which stands for the Honduras Amphibian Rescue and Conservation center and um that's they work in this cloud forest um kasuko national park in northwestern honduras and um they discovered chytrid there in 2007 
Um, and what they're what they're doing is they're looking at three critically endangered frogs, which were three of the frogs which we talked about in the study earlier. Uh, and basically, what they do is they collect young frogs, cure their chytrid uh, infections, uh, a biosecure facility that they've built in the forest, and then once they've grown up chytrid free, they release them back out into the wild um, as strong, healthy adult frogs. Uh, they also mm. maintain a captive breeding colony of frogs, um, which means that even if somehow, suddenly, some synergistic factors combine and all the frogs of one of these species go extinct, they'll have a completely separate biosecure population that they can then reintroduce, um, which is like really, really good work. Um, and they're actually running a fundraiser now, so if you're interested, you can go to frogrescue.com, read about that and have a look, potentially donate. Yeah. Yes, I mean, talk about a good cause. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, got to be up there. Yeah, got to be it's... right up there. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think if you're listening to this episode and you didn't know about culture necessarily before, that's something you can actually do, uh, which will be able to help, even if it's a few pennies. Um, so yes. yeah, uh, and wash your boots. Yeah, wash your boots. Yeah, really, wash your boots. <laughs> yeah, and uh, <laughs> yeah, get places. your get your amphibians from a reputable source that's culture free. Yeah, yeah. If... As difficult as that may be. Yeah. Um, cool. So, uh, anything? Anything else? I don't think so. I would like to apologise if there's a lot of background noise in my half of the audio, just because there's a lot of things going on around station currently. Uh, so sorry if there is engine noise and people yelling and announcements over the uh, PA system. <laughs> uh, well, I'm yeah, fair. That is uh, mightily inconvenient, Ben. God, what are you doing? Being a proper, yeah, what are you doing being a proper field if researcher? Not, if it's not the forest animals making a noise, it's the people. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's the, the thing is, it's the afternoon now. So if there are animals making noises, there'll be a different set of animals, likely Homo sapien in origin, and yeah. Yes. <clears throat> so, damn apes. Damn dirty apes. Um, yeah, cool. So I think that just about rounds up the episode, doesn't it? Kytrid. I think so. Yeah, thank you again to Sarah Morgan for um, proposing that we do this. It was fun. Prompting it was, us I, to I, do I, it. I learned yeah. a lot about Kytrid. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us, herphighlights at gmail.com. If you want to Facebook us, facebook.com slash herphighlights, Twitter at herphighlights. Um, yeah, we'd like to hear from you. If we got anything wrong, please tell us. We we make mistakes yes. really quite frequently. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just shout and we'll correct yes, ourselves. Yes, we certainly we are not experts on many of the things we talk about, if not all the things. Yeah, I'm very, so, very hesitant to call myself an expert on anything. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's the... That's, <clears throat> That's about right. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly not kytrid. Yeah. Uh, sweet. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for listening. Hmm. Thank you for listening. Hope to uh, hope you join us next week. Next week? Two weeks' time. Week after ne- next. Yes. Next fortnight. It's a bi-weekly podcast, a word that means nothing. <laughs> a word which is am- no, it's a f- fundamentally ambiguous. <laughs> no, 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 no. Species are the bi-week. It's a fortnightly podcast. Yeah, that's right. Cool. Yeah, well, thanks. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers.
extra 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 green skin foldy pool lady no that's not even funny that's not even funny cut that out cut that out that's good that's good at the end oh god 